Hello, my soul-seeking friends. It's Shanna. Thank you so much for listening to Sense of Soul Podcast. Enlightening conversations with like-minded souls from around the world, sharing their journey of finding their light within, turning pain into purpose, and awakening to their true sense of soul. If you like what you hear, show me some love and rate, like, and subscribe. And consider becoming a Sense of Soul Patreon member, where you will get ad-free episodes, monthly circles, and much more. Now go grab your coffee, open your mind, heart, and soul. It's time to awaken. Today on Sense of Soul, we have author Mike Ferrito. He is an associate editor for Mad Swirl Magazine, a regular contributor to Red Hook Star Revenue. He is a speaker and a musician, and he's joining us today to tell us about his latest and newly released book, Mescalito Riding His White Horse, Where Buddhism and Bluegrass Mix, inspired by several interviews with bluegrass legend Peter Rowan, which is already a best-selling book in country music and bluegrass books. So welcome, Mike. Hey, Shanna. How are you? I am good. How you doing? I'm doing well. Great. I love the colorful dots behind you. Thank you. Where are you located? I know it's mountain time. Yep. I'm in Colorado. Colorado. I'm in a suburb of Denver. Yeah, Aurora. Oh, cool. Sure. I, I know it. Uh, some of the most beautiful places I've ever been around there. I'm from Louisiana originally. Oh, okay, cool. Came here as a kid. My dad loved Colorado. Yeah, <laughs> you know, in those mountains. I mean, I'm from New York City and I'd never, you know, I'd been out of the city, but I was 22. I went to NYU, so I stayed in the city to go to school. And just seeing the, the array of pine tops and, and the vistas and the snow caps and you're driving to it and it's not getting closer and you're driving to it. And it was it was quite a thing, really. Yeah, it really is. I'm in a high area of the plains, so I see the entire mountain range. Wow. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, we went to a, a wedding in Vail, but before that, we'd my wife and I had gone camping. So we went camping in Nevada and just other places. And then we wended our way to Vail, which was so awesome because we showed up like bronzed. You know, I looked like Harrison Ford from Indiana Jones. <laughs> Love Although it. the fact is I was not nearly as cool and all I was yeah, chunky when it came it. to I felt it. And then yeah. when you drive from Vale, you're driving down. Yeah. And so you're looking to Denver and you're looking up and like, wow, that's I know. cool. <laughs> it is cool. It's definitely cool. It's beautiful. I was just talking about this with my eleven year old because huh. I said I didn't appreciate it as a child. Because she's always like, oh, my God, Mom, why are you taking pictures? I'm like, because look at the sunset. It's so right. pretty. Just like like I was when I was a kid. I get it. It's sort of the kind of thing where it's getting absorbed. Yeah. And, you know, when you're around beauty all the time, it's just hard to see it. You know, it's. I know. Well, and when you're busy and you're not mm -hmm. present with the world. And actually, I was listening. I don't know if I don't know where I heard this, but in stalking you. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I think it was maybe Peter. I don't know if you said it or he that the birds had a language. 
Yeah, yeah, that was so. I had been reading Ackerman, uh, Diane Ackerman's books, The Genius of Birds, and she has another. She has like six books. Uh-huh. I was reading those books. And I was getting very interested in all of the way that birds express intelligence through developing, creating a bower. The males create bowers. If they find an like a colorful toothbrush, they'll include that in their bower, and it's sort of like to the females, like, hey, you know, look at my place. You know, it's pretty cool. Of course, the the navigation. And then the song that they create, and it's so interesting, not all birds sing the same or yeah. the same lengths, but like meadowlarks and certain birds. And uh, I was just thinking, you know, we're, we're walking around in our human world and we're seeing all this intelligence around us and we're not paying attention. We're looking into the stars to say that's where, you know, intelligence is, but it's right here. And as Peter and I are having this conversation, a scrub jay lights like on the we're, we're outside in Salsalito, California and Peter and I look at it and I said I think they're paying attention I think they're listening to our conversation yeah just yesterday it was about three o'clock I was picking my daughter up from school there's like this length of time you have to show up early so you get your good parking spot so you have to have your kid walk a mile and I sat there and I decided to write because it just was so powerful, but I put staring at the birds flying in the sky. I thought to myself, I think I once was a bird flying (laughs) so free in the warmth of the sun, surrendering on a windy day and allowing the wind to take me away to wherever I was meant to be. Have you ever seen that where they just like the hawks, they just like, it's so interesting. It is. I mean, when the hawks, it's funny because even in New York city, we have hawks. And we have pigeons. So you'll you'll see these swirling kind of flock of pigeons. And then you'll see the hawk and they're like kind of gliding. They're not yeah. even flapping. And what that means is I'm going to kill someone real soon. You know, well, you can tell who's <laughs> the boss. I can tell you that. <laughs> All the birds, like, you know, everything kind of scatters, you know, and it, it could be even like a, a rat or a mouse or something, yeah. but they're eyeing something. It's kind of cool. I actually got a picture. I'll have to send it to you. I, me and a client of mine were at my house and we're looking up and the hawks were really acting kind of playful in the sky. And, you know, we both we were watching them. And I always go to, you know, how do you feel during these moments too, right? Mm. It wasn't just an average we're looking up at sure. the sky. Something was happening. And so I decided to record. I didn't notice it at the time, but later on, as I'm looking at the hawks, I actually caught a spirit hawk, like a totem in the sky. It's going a different direction. It's making different turns. Like the way it felt that moment too. There's a guy, Mike Cleland, maybe you know him, and he's written about owls and the paranormal. And it's super fascinating, just like how owls will often, you may see an owl and you may see a UFO, but there's something supernatural i mean some people that that word gets argued if it's you know maybe it's just natural and we're just dummies and not paying attention Uh, i'm gonna send you something it is the freakiest thing so and again the feeling there was a night i have two dogs and i was outside letting them go to the bathroom and all of a sudden i looked up and it was very very cold it was very cold And I could see that it was an owl. I have a really tall tree, so they like my tree. But in the picture, it looks black. It looks like the scariest thing you've ever seen. I don't know how it's sitting there because it's at the top of a very 
small branch and it's just like mm. so it it almost looks like it's not on anything yeah. yeah i have lots of pictures of owls in my backyard but that please send me yeah was creepy yeah i have a, a, an owl story that we experienced we had an encounter with an owl and i would say that my encounter was probably my in a way induction into where I've gone with the writing. And it, it was during COVID, you know, we were riding bikes and looking up at the trees, suddenly paying attention to trees. So I got into this huge tree phase and birds and stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm a city guy. So to be honest, you have to tune your mind to these things. It's, it's not, no one was pointing out when I was growing up, yeah. it, you know, birds were, it, there was one word, birds, it covered all birds. Yeah, all of them. <laughs> You know, I live in Brooklyn and we have a big park. It's it's like it's called Prospect Park, which is like Central Park. Okay. And so you do have it's it's you have a lot of trees, you have a lot of birds, it's pretty diverse. And I guess the bird from the north and the south, they kind of they'll pass through here. We have blue jays, we have cardinals, we have, you know, finches, we have all kinds of birds. And I can't necessarily identify them, but uh, starlings and just beautiful, beautiful diversity of birds and crows as well. Oh my gosh. And you're talking my, my language, my journey recently, I had come across that Nikola Tesla there in New York. He had a dove that would visit his window. So there was a woman in the 1940s. Her name was Margaret Storm. And she wrote about Nikola Tesla and she named the book Return of the Dove. And in the book, she quotes that he had told someone in a biography interview that he had love for the dove like he did a woman. But the whole book actually is about him being a Venetian, him returning back to the mothership. It's about his apprentices, what he left them specifically. And the beginning of the book, surprisingly, is about root races, starseeds. It's about the 1940s, right? Weird. Wow. He did say that she would follow up with a volume two called Flame of the Dove, which I was really wanting to find. So I tried. Margaret Storm was never to be heard of again. She never, ever wrote her second book. Wow. She did do an interview with a panel of, I think, five guys who ripped her pretty much. Um, <laughs> but that was the last time anything happened. I searched for her high and low. That lady went ghost. And the only thing you will find on her, if you Google her, is she is in the declassified Nikola Tesla files. Wow. It's interesting. There's stuff coming now with some of the disclosures. And now you have these just powerful investigators like Leslie Keen and people like that and Richard Blumenthal and all these people that are government corporals and lieutenants and pilots coming yeah. forth. And so... I mean, we have to say at least, if you want to be conservative, you can say there are things that happen that we do not understand. If you want to be a, a jerk and just say, well, it's all in your imagination, but you're crazy, that's just not good enough anymore. And even a scientifically rational person has to come to that conclusion. Otherwise, you're just not being a good scientist. Right. You know? And I know this is also another topic for your newer book been working on. So the Mescalito book is out now. Yeah. Newer book has not been published yet. It's the same publisher. It's called John Hunt Publishing. They're owned by Watkins Publishing, which is one of the oldest esoteric bookstores in England. So my other book is actually being looked at 
by a different division of John Hunt Publishing, if that all made sense. You know, you will have to come back on to talk about that because it's one of my favorite uh, topics. But let's get into why you are here. You know, one of the things I have been studying over the past year is allegorical stories and how very, I've been studying the Gnostic Gospels. And mm. so the power of storytelling and more blues in Louisiana than bluegrass. One thing, you know, there's always a story within a story and it Absolutely. means something different for everyone. Yep. So how did you get into bluegrass? Tell me about it. How did I get into bluegrass? So I'm from New York City and bluegrass is not something at the time when I was growing up, that's really front and center. What I tell people, it kind of ekes through the culture. You know, I heard bits and fragments of bluegrass through things like Deliverance, seriously, uh, the movie uh, Hee Haw and things like that. Then getting a little older, I heard, so Peter was in a band called Old and in the Way. Jerry Garcia was in that band. And with Jerry's name, Jerry's, you know, great, the, the Grateful Dead fan base was so huge. Jerry had a, a large interest in, in bluegrass. Uh, Peter's told me that Jerry, he played banjo in that band. And he, he actually wanted to go out east to be, meet Bill Monroe. Now, Jerry was kind of a hippie from, you know, from California. And Bill Monroe was a formidable kind of guy, you know, and very rigorous. And, you know, you worked for Bill Monroe. He was the man. He was kind of, he was the uh, the maker of all things. The and godfather of bluegrass. The, yeah, you could, <laughs> that's what he's called. And he said, if I didn't invent bluegrass, I'd have made a fine bluesman, is what he said. But the where the story goes is that People like me from the cities all around the country, probably all around the world, in fact, all around the world, we heard bluegrass in part because of that band. So Peter Rowan wrote many of the songs, Vassar Clements played fiddle, and David Grisman, who would play with Jerry and who would play with Peter throughout their careers, uh, he was the mandolin player. And so... Jerry had a deep interest in bluegrass, and I think the energy between them is that Jerry was an incredibly creative, really all-around musician. I mean, he played pedal steel, he played guitar, he played banjo, and very deeply interested in all kinds of music. And I think he saw in Peter, Peter was a connection to the roots of bluegrass. Peter played with Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass. And what Peter saw in Jerry, you know, Peter was, when he met up with Jerry, he's in his early 20s. He left Bill Monroe, and he saw this freedom and this entrance into a new kind, the music that he wanted to play, the music of his generation. Mm -hmm. I mean, he would remain a bluegrass player all his life, till today. But he saw in Jerry, I think, freedom in music. And so hearing that album, which is... uh it's it's super uh you you can't help but tap your foot when you hear that album the songs are joyful super fun to listen to it's recorded uh live so you'll hear a lot of mm. kind of cheering and noise in the background but there's something pure there's this joy this essence of what bluegrass is so that was a big factor now when i first heard it you know i'm say 17 or so i can't say i really understood bluegrass what that was Later on, my brother went to Columbia University, and I would go to his room to hang out with him. And of course, people were from everywhere. 
So say I'm 17 years old, I go to his room and I hear down the hall, I hear this music. Wow, this fast paced, you know, virtuoso playing. And I walk to the room of the guy who I didn't know. And I said, what, what is that you're playing? And I think he said, Stanley Brothers. I went out and at that time, CDs were just now becoming available. There weren't many. I mean, you'd go to the biggest stores and they had a, a small section of bluegrass. For, of course, they went to the popular stuff that would sell you know, yeah. in volume. Bluegrass has always been a niche kind of thing. So I picked up some bluegrass and I started to get into it. And, and I'd say that was the beginning of it from a New York City boy who, you know, it, it, it came in like a dove through the window and uh, I went after it, followed it to the forest and to the deepest places. And uh, you could say, you know, I'm, I'm hooked. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know how like country songs or I was talking about, I lost my dog and lost my mom. And, right, right. Oh my God, they can be so depressing. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> yes. What kind of stories are often told within the bluegrass? There's a lot of gospel music in bluegrass. You'll also have uh, ballads. Bill Monroe has a song about getting stuck in traffic. You have a lot of murder ballads, actually, in old American music. Those go back to, you know, Appalachian music was very much influenced by the British, the Scots-Irish music. But it was also a composite of Scots-Irish with Delta blues. You know, when I write about that in the book, that the way that Bill Monroe saw it, he wanted bluegrass to have a kind of gallop pace. What Peter said is that you have to follow the horse's hooves. They also had gospel singing. So you'll have three-part harmonies and you'll hear this gospel singing that's accompanied by what is a standout and different from country music is the emphasis on instrumentation and playing. And there's a, a speed and a skill level. You don't just step into a bluegrass song. You know, I've done that. I've sat around bluegrass jams and you get the nod. There was a guy in Greenwich Village, Sheriff Bob. And when you got the nod, you had about a second to answer. And if you didn't, Bob moved on. And everybody in that ensemble, and I didn't know these people, it was just random people show up. They were superb musicians. Yeah. So it, there is a kind of, uh, you know, the song topics can be really about anything. They are often about high holiness. They're often about spirituality. And it's mm -hmm. funny, if I may tell you, I moved out to California in my early 20s. And I met someone who's a Grateful Deadhead. I had in my mind, well, he'll like this bluegrass music. You know, I didn't really bridge it. I didn't think about it. And I handed him a tape of the Stanley Brothers. And sometime later, he gives it back to me and says, I didn't know you were into the spiritual music. And I said, did you listen to the music, though? And, and actually, the spirituality of it doesn't alienate me. I like it. I like this creating a feeling of connection to your higher self you know, take away the particulars. There's this invitation to your higher self. I mean, all music does that, in my opinion. Some disco can do that, you know, and yeah. I know I'm going to get a rock thrown at me from some bluegrass guy somewhere. <laughs> all music is transcendent mm -hmm. and all music can take you if you're open to it. We were talking about before the birds and the language of birds and the, the chatter of birds, the talk of birds, the language. And it sort of precedes human language. Those kinds of sounds are deep inside our unconscious. And I yeah. think music can, you know, can make you cry. Mm -hmm. It can make you laugh. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. It could take you back to, you know, remember when we were in high school and it has all kinds of feelings. I mean, I cry when I listen to music sometimes and I laugh, I get excited, you know, come home, I put on something that's going to get me pumped up. Yeah. And sometimes you get all deep, you know, and you want to listen to Billie Holiday or something that's just takes you to an emotional place. So a long winded way of saying that I think that the topics of bluegrass can be many, can be varied, but ultimately if you're really listening, anyone who's really listening, hears some of the finest music ever made. And there's a lot of emotion and joy and sometimes sorrow too. So I have two mini series besides Sense of Soul. One is on Sophia on the Gnostic yeah. Gospel. And the other one prior was on my ancestry. And you will find that I put music in each episode that it meant so much to me, this music. Like uh-huh. this one song, it is Sonny Boy Williamson. And he plays the harmonica. The song, Keep It to Yourself. He says, you don't have to tell nobody. Every time I hear it, my entire body is experiencing it from my skin to my ears, to my heart, to my soul, my energy. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So when you were talking about that, how I was just imagining that Sonny Boy Williamson, they have a video on YouTube. It is live. He was like one of the only African-Americans in the place. And mm-hmm. all of these people, they look like they're from like the 50s. And, yeah. he, and they're all like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and he's just, I mean, the guy doesn't have his full set of teeth. You know, he was probably living in segregation at the time. Yeah. I probably even had his own water fountain if he was in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And so here he was, and they were feeling what I was feeling. Yeah, and I think that's what American music, and I do. we spoke a lot about this, and I'm very interested. There was, a, if you've heard of him, his name was Harry Smith, and he, he was an artist. He came from, I think he was from Seattle. He came to New York to do art, and he got involved with Menkes, I think it was the, Jonas Menkes, who was a filmmaker, and he did some incredible art films. But he also was, an, he was an archivist. He was this found correspondence in disparate things. Mm -hmm. He put together the anthology of American folk music. He was also a mystic. Mm -hmm. And what he did is kind of an alchemist. He would sort of summarize the song and he would give it this mythical kind of encapsulation. He also Mm -hmm. did things, uh, he put the music together so you couldn't tell who was what. So people didn't know Uh, what race, because the early records in in the United States were very race-driven, oriented, and race-segregated. This was made for Black people. This was made for white people. But, you know, in music, the, the, uh, say, in the South, there were blues elements in country music. There were country elements in blues music. How you would disentangle that is your own thing. But that was one of the beautiful things. And that anthology became a Rosetta Stone for American music. Bob Dylan used that to create his music and, and really many of his peers of that time. And of course, Peter was very much influenced by that as well, Peter Rowan. But it's it's interesting that you say that, you know, you're seeing what's happening in this uh, in this video. 
Uh, I love Sonny Boy Williamson's version of You Shook Me. I, I think he wrote it, but he does it. So Led Zeppelin does, you know, you know, you shook me, but he does it. You know, you shook me, you shook me all night long. And when I do my version of it, because I play guitar, I do his version. Oh, you do? It's, more, it's funkier. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It's so odd. I, I feel like it might. It was one of those things where I actually sent it to my son. So I have a child who's autistic who mm. loves old music. Okay. Mm. He appreciates, cool. like he listens to more seventies and eighties, but if I send him some good jazz, he'll just all day listen to it. He loves it. So there's where, you know, it has nothing to do with who it is, has right. nothing to do. It's about the tone, the words, and there's no ego involved. Right. Right. So, you know, this kid knows good music like no other. Yeah, he always has the best music going on in his room. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Uh, my uh, uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law have an autistic son. And when I go to see him, I play, they live in California. We, I'll play some songs for him. Yeah. And uh, he loves Wish You Were Here. So when I play it, it's uh, it's emotional <clears throat> for everyone but he really connects with that song and the joy that he feels. And of course I love playing it uh, uh, for him, but I play a few songs uh, that, you know, a uh, uh, friend of the devil uh, specifically for him. Oh, that's so, so cool. Well, tell me about your relationship with Peter. Cause I think it was kind of very, it turned into something very unique. You met with him several yeah. times and um, you know, he seemed like he was, or he is he's not passed is he no no no, no i mean poor he's... guy I'm, trying, I'm already got him in the grave <laughs> <laughs> he's uh i just saw him in fact in um florida i went to a, a festival a music festival so i i initially interviewed him and it's part of the book too because it was sort of magical uh, the way it the way it transpired i think you'll appreciate this so uh, a good friend of mine is an artist uh, juan carlos pinto and he does he does various kinds of art. He has a studio nearby. He does mosaics. Um, he also does something unique. He takes MTA New York City subway cards. He breaks them up into little bits and makes portraits. And also he does landscapes and other things too. Now he has a whole bird series for the Autobahn. So I go to his studio often on a you know when actually it's a place it's a gathering place. So other artists come. They they collaborate on these mosaics sometimes they'll be made of porcelain bits glass bits they'll be made of uh refuse and that's part of his art theory is found objects and you know everything is art and i'm in his studio it's a friday night we often will go there after it's a long week we'll have a couple of beers listen to music and people show up and he has a, a roof top oh, nice. so uh, we'll go and hang out and it's a lot of fun so in in his studio he has works in progress, completed works all around the studio, hung up. There was a, a work that I'd seen he'd been working on, uh, and there's a whole thing we can go into on that, but on portraits of indigenous people. And he'd introduced me to someone that I be, became friends with, uh, Roman, who is a, a, a chief of the Taino tribe. But I won't go too much into that. I'll just say that when I saw the portrait, which was kind of buried of this guy, Ernie Panicoli, mm -hmm. I'll get there. Believe me, we'll get to the end, end point. I see this portrait 
And what really stuck out is the eyes. Is I think Pinto's learned how to make the eyes so that they come alive. You see the spirit. You see the anim, you know, the animus in this, yes. uh, in this uh, portrait. And I said, "Who, who's that guy?" And he tells me the story. So Ernie Panicoli is, he lives uh, in New Jersey now. He was from Brooklyn. He uh, is half Cree or he's, you know, some combination of Cree and his last name is Italian. He grew uh -huh. up in Brooklyn and he became the de facto photographer of hip hop. And uh -huh. the hip hop guys trusted him because, you know, he was from the places they were from. Yeah. And he's a straight talking guy a very deep and beautiful person, but I think they could sense the no BS in Ernie. And anyway, I eventually, I did an interview with Ernie that be, that was published and Ernie and I became friends and Ernie said, Hey, there's a friend I have that if you'd like to meet, her name is Young Chen. She's a Tibetan singer. And I said, yeah, sure. I'd love to meet her. And I listened to her music in preparation her music is amazing. It's beautiful. It's it has the traditional Tibetan aspects, but it's she's works with Russian piano players, with Spanish guitar players, and it's it's very international. Her second album was put out on Peter Gabriel's label. Cool. Anyway, I did an interview. This was during the COVID times with uh, Young Chin. We've since become, I think, pretty good friends. I'd also read that she did some music with Peter Rowan. So in my interview with her, which was kind of cool, because she gets on the video, we're on a Zoom call, and she's praying, because Tibetans often will basically pray at every moment, every breathing moment, they'll, they'll be praying. Okay. You, you figure out what's going on when her she was whispering as she's mm -hmm. speaking back and forth. Anyway, she said, so I said, you played with Peter, can you tell me about that? And she said, would you like to meet him? Would you like to talk to him? I'm like, yeah, sure. So then I, you know, I reached out to Peter and we did a interview before it was going to be one article for a magazine. And the thing about Peter is that he's so, Peter knows he possesses the kind of folklore gems. Mm -hmm. uh, he's very eloquent. He's interested in literature. He's interested in philosophy. He's a, a, a Buddhist. And we had a lot of common interests. We had interests in indigenous culture interest in philosophy in Buddhism, of course, music, and he's broadly interested in all kinds of music, jazz and classical, not yeah. just bluegrass. He's, he's actually from Wayland, Massachusetts, Peter. Okay. Um, so we, I think I was just fascinated when I'm listening to him and he has these stories of, we talked about Harry Smith, who I, I mentioned, uh, we talked about uh, Bill Monroe, uh, we talked about he has a way of, uh, I would say, mythologizing the history and mm. making it super interesting. I was just captivated. And as I'm speaking to him and I'm, I'm getting these ideas, which I'm a little, I was embarrassed to articulate at the moment. But then we had a few conversations. And in between those conversations, I started to have dreams. Mm. And, you know, I had these wild dreams. And and it occurred to me, I just said, I, I think, Peter, I'm having this feeling of a, la a larger project. Would you be interested? And then I pitched the project to him. 
something like I said, it, I don't know, it could be a longer article, it could be a book, that's what I would try to do. But it's something, the spiritual roots of bluegrass music, really all music, and how music creates the universe, or how the entanglement with mm -hmm. the complexity of physics and cosmology is somehow interwoven into the fabric of music. You know, to which some people might say, you know, thank you for your nodding your head there. But some people might say, what? And but Peter said, oh, that sounds cool. OK, I'm, I'm, uh, let's let's go. So we started to work on uh, work on the book. Well, I started to work on the book and then I shared with him early drafts and I think he dug it. And he said, uh, you know, I'm touched that you you got it. You know, and and what what is it that I got? You know, I think Peter, in his lyrics, he's he's often writing about liberation, and it's all kinds of liberation. It could be uh, yeah. spiritual liberation, um, the liberation of a people. Mm -hmm. um, he's multicultural, so he was into interested in bluegrass. He's also uh, done an album of Hawaiian music. He's done an album of reggae music. He's wow. done Buddhist oriented. Right. There's an album called Dharma Bums, uh, Dharma Blues. Dharma Bums is Jack Kerouac. He also did, he lived in Texas for a while. So he was very much involved in, there's a guy, Flaco Jimenez, who plays accordion. All of the big rock guys played with mm -hmm. him. Bob Dylan, you know, Ray Cooter. And he, Flaco, who's uh, played on a number of Peter's albums. But it's Tex-Mex music, so it's mm bop bop mm bop bop mm bop bop, and that's actually where the the lyrics to well the the book title came from. So the book title came from the Free Mexican Air Force Mescalito, and that song is kind of about that you know marijuana is being controlled by the government, you know at that time, and marijuana can free your mind and your soul, kind of. And that's sort of, you know, and also Mescalito is harking back and Peter had read Carlos Castaneda. The Mescalito character comes from uh, Carlos Castaneda's uh, Don Juan stories. And there's that, that harking back and incorporation of that. And so the, ti the, uh, uh, the title of the book, yeah, comes from uh, Free Mexican Air Force. So if that sort of spans... Uh, the book got going, and I think that we have, you know, it's not a fan thing. It's more of, it's a deep respect for the artist. Right. And I think that's what it's in, inspiring. And I think he's an important artist. And I wanted to make sure, I my feeling was, I'm doing this thing in homage to the artist and then laying a wreath at his feet to say, you know, thank you. And recognizing, of course, he has lots of fans, but no one had written a book about him. Oh my and god! So I'm like, so I get it. I get it. I get it. Mm -hmm. But you want cool. people to get it. Exactly. You want people exactly. to get it, and I get it. And tell me if I got it. I'm, I've gotten so much just now. Yeah. So I do believe that the key to the universe and its creation and everything was frequency and vibration. I mean, mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I think Tesla would agree with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And scientists. <laughs> I've had on Evan Alexander, right? I've had him on. I've had so many people on this podcast who have had near death experience. Do you know how many of them heard music on the mm -hmm. other side? 
right? Mm -hmm. David Ditchfield, so many. I also see that when you, I just was talking about my son, Ethan, when you don't have your conditioned ego mind involved in anything, we can all sit here together, just like with Sonny Boy Williamson. They didn't care about his color, right? They didn't care Mm -hmm. about the differences. It was truly the music. And that Mm -hmm. brought everyone together in that frequency, that vibration, all collectively. I get Mm -hmm. it. And that is such a powerful thing. And you're right. When you think about even big, big moments, like remember when they did the group song, We Are the World? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So many differences. I mean, I remember as a child, you know, watching the actual donation thing on television, you know, you donated. Yes, I remember. It was so powerful. You had everyone, different genres, different styles, colors, genders, and it actually did touch the world. We need Mm -hmm. another one of those. It's true. It's true. And I, and I, so you absolutely do get it. I mean, think when you get married, you know, you, there's music um, at all kinds of occasions, um, I mean, music can form revolutions. There's music to every political movement. It goes deeper than rational language yes. and can bring you in, can bring people together. Think when you're at a concert and you have all these people and everyone's unified on what's going on here. It's bigger than we are. And yes. I think that, you know, that's what you clearly stated. You know, that was what struck me, but also the... Peter being the alchemist and the, you know, he's knowingly with yes. a lot of humor, by the way, he's also, he's funny too. Would you like me to read some like very short sections, very short things? Yeah. So if I may, one thing that's very original in this book, and I don't mean that I'm original. I think that original in the sense that I used Peter's lyrics, even in the prose. So in the, the prose itself or in the, in the titles of chapters, So this title is chapter, I Have Been Illusions Fool. So it's not just this exploration of music history. It's also a spiritual journey. And it was, those were inspired, those journeys were inspired by some of Peter's songs um, and then some of the conversation and then some of the dreams and, you know, then the reading that I was doing. So I'll just read this briefly. It's from uh, the chapter, I Have Been Illusions Fool which is a lyric from one of Peter's songs. I had a dream weeks after our meeting. In the dream, I was given a sacred object, perhaps by extraterrestrials. The object looked benign. When I looked closer, I saw a likeness of a green and purple Yoda Buddha. But the image can only be discovered by holding the object sideways and upside down, like the way you might suddenly hear the encoded messages in bluegrass or any music. You had to discover the primer to truly hear it. You had to come to this realization. It's just one example. Um, I want to read another section briefly. I love that. It reminds me how I always say in the Gnostic Gospels, Jesus seemed like a Zen master telling Zen stories. Yeah. And actually, so Peter makes what he says is that Bill Monroe was like Rinpoche, you know, like the great Rinpoche's, he had a, he, his, what he had mastered was a kind of, you know, a a deep spiritual uh, journey that he passed on. And I mean, think of the impact this music still has. I have a 
Peter Rowan Page. I have fans in Japan. You have people in Iceland. You have people in uh, Slovakia. All over, of course, the United States, but all over the world. So this thing that was in Bill Monroe's head, which he was very adamant about what that form was, mm -hmm. and he wanted it to be to have a certain quality. And of course, it's evolved, it's mutated. And but those that are interested, we kind of know what he was going for. Let me read a section. Now, this is going to be a little bit of field. The title is called the title of the chapter is My Love Will Never Change. And that's from uh, Peter Rohn's song. What I did is I should let you know that Yeshe Songol, who is was Padma Sambhava's uh, consort, Padma Sambhava brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. Yeshe Songol was his archivist, and she wrote down his teachings. And basically, according to the folklore, and I'm not an expert on the subject, but we know his teachings through her. And I kind of make her Yungchen Lamo. So I kind of combine the two people okay, like in my imagination. So during his journeys, Padmasambhava met Yeshe Songol, who became his consort and then his archivist. It is said that Songol was often seen silently mouthing Tibetan prayers while holding prayer beads close to her heart, kind of like what Yungchen did. Yeshe Sogol's hair was adorned with a dangling blue coral pendant. Like Padmasambhava, she was an immensely powerful mystic. Yeshe memorized and privately recited Padmasambhava's teaching and instructions, keeping them hidden from those who would corrupt them. The teachings were only whispered from lips to lips. Yeshe Songol learned that the key to understanding Padmasambhava's wisdom was embracing its emphasis on compassion. Even the great sages could be too focused on their own mastery of meditation and prayer, where prayer and meditation were merely techniques. And I'll skip to a section here. Our hands clasped in prayer, Yeshe now sang out at the top of her lungs. My love will never change, she proclaimed, her voice like clapping thunder. Suddenly a great wind swept over the land, quaking the ground, toppling the mountains of skeletons in its wake. Her voice roared like a thousand chainsaws lawnmowers, trucks, and the groan of a million dying stars. It echoed throughout a billion universes. But it was also a cry of love. Yeshe then rushed towards the demons. As they backed away from her, she began dancing. She danced the dance of the love of ages and the love of all things. And as she danced, Yeshe began to chant and sing, let every living, breathing being find happiness. Even the demons were now spellbound, she had opened their hearts with her boundless love and compassion. With her arms wide open, she embraced the demons, holding them lovingly to her chest. She even let them drink her blood, but only to nourish themselves. They swarmed around her, drawn by her affection and made gentle by her compassion. And so this is a kind of composite of, it's from a song that the lyrics, my love will never change. So I took those lyrics and I took elements of Yungchen Lamo. So if you see her, she wears beautiful hair clasps and things, and she dresses very traditional Tibetan style. Kind of put this all together in this composite vision. She is the divine feminine energy. Everyone's talking about the same thing. 
you know, just different names, different words, right. similar stories throughout mythology and different cultures. And I just think it's so beautiful because when we're able to be on the same vibration, it is the same song that we're all receiving. You said it. I mean, it's different cultures, different languages, but the song transcends. And the song, it's the archetypal, you know, what we all, Mercia, Iliade, and, you know, uh, folks like that, that have written about Jungian archetypes, these things that they transcend culture. And uh, yeah, so all I did was, I just knocked on a door, and the door opened up, and a big, great wind came out of it. And I just let the wind blow across my face. I didn't invent it. You know, I'm just, I'm just a holder of the candle for a bit. That's all. You were like my bird flying in the wind and letting it carry you to wherever you were meant to be. And so I certainly appreciate it. And I think it's a beautiful story. I think that's unique. You know, if if people could just be present, even just with music, you know, Mm -hmm. how many Peters are out there trying to really speak to your soul really, truly mm-hmm. make a difference in the world. Wisdom can come from anywhere and yeah. often does. I mean, sometimes it's draped in intellectual language, but some of the wisest and smartest people I know aren't, don't, don't really fit that. So yeah, it's, it's that unifying and the discovering. I mean, I've done a lot of talking, <laughs> right? But I think listening is important and listening on all levels, listening to each other listening to what's happening and it's a hard thing you know buddha means awake and it's hard to stay awake every second i mean i'm i'm sleeping most of the time but it's that aspiration towards awakening that we strive for and i i'm not saying that i've achieved anything i'm i've observed and i've aspired to and hope for all of my uh you know foibles and failings but when someone inspires you and creates magic you're drawn to it so I'm going to go listen to some Stevie Nicks for the rest of the day and clean my house <laughs> because she gets me through. So yeah. thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. Wonderful story. Thank you so much for having me and a great conversation and fun. And I know it was sort of a whirlwind, but what the heck? That's what oh, we do. So tell everybody where they can get your book. You can go to MikeFiorito.com and that's F-I-O-R-I-T-O. That's one place, just my author page. The book is titled Mescalito, No Relationship to Fiorito, Mescalito Riding His White Horse. If you type my name on, it's available anywhere books are sold, I'm told. If you go to Amazon, you'll see it come up and I have other books there as well. But uh, this is the hot one that it's gotten a lot of great reviews, which I'm very humbled by. And uh, so thank you so much, Shanna, for having me on. And uh, let's do this again. Let's keep in touch. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to hear about the aliens. Well, we're going to get down on that. Thanks for listening to Sense of Soul podcast. And thanks to our special guests for joining me. If you want more of Sense of Soul, check out my website at www.mysenseofsoul.com, where you can work with me one-on-one or help support Sense of Soul podcast by donating to my coffee fund. Thanks for listening.